On this week's show, we chat to our first cinematographer guest and her director. I don't feel comfortable as of yet shooting with a male DP. There's such an ego. It's like, you know, when you're arguing with your partner, if you have a male partner and you're arguing with them about like the washing up. (laughs) (laughs) Plus reviews of their film Luxor, as well as the new Pixar movie and more feminist film chat with critic Leslie Felperin and myself. Anna Smith. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm going to get that gun of mine, and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face, you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? Welcome to Girls on Film. First up, let's hear from writer-director Zaina Durra and cinematographer Zelmira Gainza. Zaina Durra's first film, The Imperialists Are Still Alive, was nominated for the Sundance Grand Jury Prize in 2010. Her follow-up is Luxor, an atmospheric indie film starring Andrea Riseborough as a surgeon who's just left a war zone and is visiting the Egyptian city of Luxor. She's struggling to deal with post-traumatic stress when she bumps into an ex-boyfriend, Sultan, played by Karim Saleh. Welcome. What are you doing here? Um, I can't believe you're here. Yeah, I didn't think that you'd be here. Do you remember what it was like 20 years ago? Yes. <laughs> well, Zayna and Zelmira, welcome to Girls on Film. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Well, let's start with Zayna. Tell us a little bit of background for you as a filmmaker and how you would describe Luxor in the context of your previous film. Okay, born here, lived here, you know, all my life until I was 22, went to NYU grad film in New York, stayed out there, made my first feature there, came back here after a decade, had some kids, then made this movie in Luxor, Egypt. My father is Jordanian, Lebanese, and my mom is Bosnian by blood, Palestinian born. She's basically grew up here since she was tiny, though. I'm like an English, Arab, Bosnian director. I mean, it's a bit of a mouthful. And this movie, you know, we made in Luxor because I had a dream about Luxor, which sounds totally mental, but actually I don't dream that much, but clearly this was a good dream to take notes on. It certainly was. I'm a huge (laughs) fan, as you know, because I hosted this premiere Q&A with you both at The Everyman. And we spoke then about the dreaming. I'm a big fan of anything to do with dreaming and inspiring movies. But I'm just going to move to Zelmira now because I enjoyed your potted bio. So Zelmira, can we have one of those from you, please? Okay. British born. I grew up in London. I moved to New York also went to NYU grad film after Zaina, having sort of met her actually and been inspired by her time there to go and do the same thing. And I specialized in cinematography from the beginning and graduated from NYU, stayed in New York, worked there, and then this summer moved to Stockholm. So I'm now Sweden based, but still sort of hopefully at some point back and forth between New York and here for work. And my parents are from Argentina. So 
I grew up in a sort of mixed background household as well, so like very Argentine culture and parents, but then obviously, you know, British schooling, which I think was one of the reasons why Zane and I sort of, you know, there's so many things that we just understood about each other. That's interesting. So it sounds like a real collaboration. Zaina, do you remember the moment when you said, right, we have to work together. This is something that needs to happen. It was the phone call that we had about the film. Well, Zell and I had already done some really fun experimental stuff. So like when I was leaving the apartment I'd lived in in New York, there was no furniture there. And I called Zell up. I'm like, can you come and shoot me? I'm going to recreate every argument I've ever had with a boyfriend in this apartment. <laughs> Because <laughs> I was also I was also going to London to get married, you know, so it was like a big and so I recreated these kind of major arguments I'd had with people I'd loved over the last ten years. And Zell was like, Wow, I didn't know that happened because she obviously knew all my ex-boyfriends. And it's the kind of project you could only do with someone that knew you really well, because obviously you were saying a lot of personal stuff. And it was all about this experimental project about memory that Zell did with me. And then we collaborated just before that on a short thing that I'd done for Hogan. Um, in 2009 but really Zell and me knew each other actually we did our undergraduate degree in the same university in England and then Zell went to New York to pursue something else and then she wanted to change into film and she was actually what was it you were on the on the on my thesis film I was camera intern I just thought about that today it's amazing (laughs) she was the best camera intern ever we but also like moral support because Zell's great for being like a really positive influence on the set because she's got very alert energy but it doesn't like overimpose or like become like a clash of egos she's just kind of there and she listens and she can help and it's just the perfect kind of thing you need when you're dealing with 50 million egos yeah so that's how kind of how we met and then when I was telling her this dream I was actually calling her because I was really bummed about the other film that I didn't get to make which we will make <laughs> as I keep on saying well, one day but probably not right now but we will and I was telling her about that movie and she goes to me well it sounds fantastic whatever it is if you want me to I'll come out and do it and I was like well would you do it for nothing and she's like yep and then it, she was kind of like there and then we knew we'd do it together on the phone call before I had a script so how did how did you pitch that that dream and the concept of Luxor to her? I didn't really pitch it. It was literally talking to a really close friend about like this kind of psychological thing you'd had. And hey, I think this is a movie. And she goes, yeah, I think this is. You know, that's why it's really important to have. I really liked my film school experience because in America, it's a really, NYU grad film in those days. Now they chuck you out early. But in those days, you could go on for like years. People didn't. People, when I arrived at the program, hadn't graduated after like nine years because you could use all the facilities. Literally, it was like a studio. You could move, you could use everything. (laughs) You essentially build these very brilliant friendships with people that you start to trust. And like, you know, you'll show your movie in a class and then someone will come up to you and say, I really like that. Or someone will be maybe a bit jealous, but then they'll be like, well, that was actually really good. And then you become friends afterwards. It's quite funny. It's all very like art school. It really reminded me of Fame. You remember that movie Fame? Mm. It was a bit like that in my time. We even had like a counsellor, like when things got really stressful. Now I'm jealous. If you guys went to the Fame school, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of like that, without like, even with the dancing, because we all go dancing after class. What? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was New York. I mean, why did I not go to film school in England yep. for a reason? <laughs> It was really fun. We partied hard. We made lots of movies. We would work all night in the edit suite, which is in the center of downtown Manhattan. It was like the best time. So you create these bonds. And even if Zell wasn't there when I was there, she was part of that like psyche, you know? And so I just knew I could have this kind of relationship with her, which we already had anyway, because we'd met when we were 18, right? 18 or 19? Yeah. 
Um, oh, actually, we realised we went to the same nursery school, <laughs> and we realised we did ballet together. Yep, we worked this out on the on the shoot. Oh, you only figured that out on the shoot? Yeah. That's fascinating. What fun! Is it, this really was meant to be? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> it feels like it. <laughs> Where were you? Where were you? I don't know. I don't remember much these days. Are you going back? I think one falls in love with the place and has to keep on coming back. Are you going back? Coming back to the film, um, for people who haven't seen it yet, Zaina, how, because I mean, I, I would describe it a little bit like armchair travel in a way, taking you off to Egypt with Andrea Riseborough's fantastic character, Hannah. I mean, how did you conceive of it and what was your goal? Yeah, the first thing was to understand what the emotions were in this dream they were very basic it was like you know they were nuanced but there was definitely like this kind of basic heaviness and the dream was about mourning so I wanted to deal with this woman who was mourning and then I had to kind of unpack what she was mourning and then I realized she's mourning the way the world has changed she's in the region why is she in the region she's probably mourning some kind of loss she's seen something and I kind of unpacked it in that way and really then it was like giving her a job at first I didn't want her to have a job that you knew of, which is going to be all like super, super vague. And then I, then I was like, you know what? I can't have as much fun with the camera if I don't give them a few more little seeds. So I had to give more information because the more information you give in a film like that, it has to be spread out like little moments, little kind of hooks. But then actually you can go even more, uh, have more fun with your visuals, you see, because you've given people something to digest so then they can just, they understand and they're more willing to hold your hand through the visual journey. Well, as you know, I'm a big fan of the way that you sort of gave us little bits of exposition in here, but not too much. And, you know, allow us to sort of decode its mysteries, this film, which I thought was really powerful. And of course, a key part of that is the central performance from Andrea Riseborough. Zayna, tell me a little bit about casting her. So that was really crazy. I was in the Cotswolds in a cottage and she was in Senegal, in Dhaka, I think. She's just been shooting and we were FaceTiming. And we got on really, really well. And she said, yeah, I'll do this. She'd seen my first movie. She'd read the script. And she says, but the thing is, I've only got like three weeks starting in two weeks. I was like, okay. And then we just sort of made it happen. I don't know how. We, literally, when we got there, we didn't even we didn't have the, we didn't even know if we had the permits yet, Zah. I mean, we knew they no. were happening, right? Yeah. <laughs> it was like very indie. They got confirmed at the hotel, which was where we were meant to shoot the first week, got confirmed the day before. Yeah. Because there was a sudden like, oh, we might have to shoot Valley of the Kings tomorrow instead of in the hotel. And it was like, okay. <laughs> we had to be really sort of just nimble and go with, be like, all right, things might change. It all worked out. Constantly. Yeah, it all worked out. I'm even more impressed when I hear what a challenge it was for you all. Now, Zamira, I've realised that in 55 episodes, you are our first director of photography to come oh, really? on Girls on Film. Thank you. What Yay! an honour. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I hope we'll have many more. I don't know why we haven't done it yet. Um, So, yeah, great to have you. I think for, I mean, some of our listeners are in film and some are not. They just love watching films. So can you explain in the context of this film what your job really specifically involves? My job is to get inside the director's head and understand slash learn to see the vision that they have for the look of the film and execute that, make that, then put that on the screen so that hopefully they'll look at it and go, oh, that's exactly what I had in my mind. And in technical forms, it means it's the lighting, it's the camera, sometimes it's electrical lights, sometimes it's working with sunlight and you know bouncing it diffusing it blocking it off or whatever that and then also 
really trying to understand the script. I want to understand the script as well as the director does, and especially when they write it, which obviously Zayna did. So I can have that every time we're making any sort of creative decision, you know, just be like, okay, it means that, it means that. It's, it's storytelling. It's the visual part of the storytelling, which is really fun. Very well put. And I'm also want to follow that up by asking, as a female director of photography, do you think you bring something different and your female peers do when you're filming women? Because we're always talking about the, the male gaze, the female <laughs> gaze. Say you're doing a romantic scene. Have you ever had feedback from actors saying, oh, actually, this is different when a woman's looking down the lens? Yes, I have had women feel that I've got their back. If they're actresses who are, it's funny, very often it's the really beautiful ones who can be really insecure about their looks. You know, and they really? say, oh, please. Yeah, they say, like, I'm, I'm self-conscious about my hips or something. Please, or please don't shoot me. I had one actress who didn't like her profile. She said, please don't shoot my profile. And I was like, I've got you. Because I, I understand what bad photographs look like of me or bad angles. And if they're older actresses, um, camera height and soft light, are their friends. So I basically want actors to feel comfortable. And then if there's, you know, scenes of intimacy, I try and be as inobtrusive as possible. So by not having too much equipment around them, that was the great thing about going to NYU is that we had to study directing as well, even if we didn't want to be directors. And so I had to see, you know, my friends were directing and working with actors. And I had to learn like, oh, if you put a stand there and tell an actor, just, you know, step over that when you're doing that really emotional thing, you can't do that. It's just really un uncool. So all those sorts of considerations, I think, help. I'm quite, I can be quite quiet at times. I think I'm not, I think, Zaina, I'm not a loud person. No, I'll tell you what. So this is the thing about Zell. Like, I don't feel comfortable as of yet shooting with a male DP. And maybe I haven't met the right ones, but like, I'm very happy right now with my situation. So I don't, I'm not really looking, but I just feel there's such an ego. It's like, you know, when you're arguing with your partner, if you have a male partner and you're arguing with them yeah, about yes. like the washing up. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, you know, sometimes there's a fundamental like male, female thing going on. And I just don't have time for that on set. I find that the men I have worked with in the past are less professional with me. And I am a director who's will tell you, I know how I want it framed, which could be a problem. I'm like, they set up the camera and I frame it and then we talk about it and I'm very hands-on. And I don't say, oh, darling, just do it all. Yeah, and I'll be over here talking to the actors. I do not work like that. And I think that probably some male EPs prefer that because they just don't have to deal with you. Wow. Mm, maybe. I definitely prefer having someone with, with vision. I have had the directors who are not engaged with that part at all. And it's much more fun when you feel that someone else has a vision. And it's much more of a feeling of an achievement when you make something look the way they wanted it to which was you know but yeah but also that's definitely about like male female for me anyway because I just feel maybe it's also the way society is I feel much safer with a woman but then you know also wait hang on there can be some feisty female DPs too yeah know? they so can <laughs> we know some and so it just depends really I think I think DPs they are kind of rock starry because of what they do and sometimes I need one that doesn't have a big ego that will come in and try it and work as a team because I have such a strong vision. They've just got to come on board. They're the DP for this film. They've got to come on board and make this film with us all and not have any hissy fits. Perfect. <laughs> I love that. I just forgot how pregnant this place is. The history of 
Hastings being here with us. The old world is dying. <laughs> and the new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. Saying, uh, talk to me a little bit about the sound and the music from the film and your concept for that. I had seen the movie Embrace of the Serpent. I really loved the sound because if you've done any of that, that kind of stuff, the sound there was so brilliant because it wasn't overpowering, it wasn't didactic, it didn't tell you how to feel, but it added this like psychic layer to the film, which was really important. And we really needed that in Luxor. So I found Nasqui through a Colombian friend of mine who knew the producers of, of Embrace the Serpent. And then also at the same time, our executive producer, Paul Webster, had found him on Facebook. I mean, literally, that's how guys keep your Facebook's accounts, because that's basically how people still find you. <laughs> and so we found Nasqui that way. And then we really worked on using sounds that came from that part of the world but that weren't orientalist because it was really important for me that it was a universal film and that it wasn't steeped in this kind of like suddenly you'd hear the lute and some like you know arabic singing mm -hmm. yeah it wasn't cliched yeah it's really hard because that's beautiful and it is the soul of that part of the world but you know when you're trying to do a film like this and you've got like a blonde white english actress in there you really don't want to have that you know what i mean <laughs> So I just, I just, um, sound was really important in that way. It really helped us. Smart move. Um, now, before I have a final question for you both, tell us how people can continue to watch Luxor. So what's great is we're number one on, did you know this, on Curzon Home Cinema? Congratulations. That's wonderful. We've been number one for a while, but I was just sent an email about it in some trade, which is great. And so you can watch it at Curzon. If you go to modernfilms.com forward slash Luxor, then you can also see where you can do virtual screenings. If you scroll a bit down, you'll see like, say, for example, with the Rio Cinema or lots of local cinemas as a partnership. And so you can support your local cinema and watch the movie, which is really nice. Then there's also it's just on the BFI player. It's, it's all listed there. But I think it's great that we've been able to sort of... Our distributor has been really wonderful because she really came up with a plan at the beginning of the first lockdown and what to do. And it's sort of now really come together for my film, I think. Definitely. And I know I'm, I'm just very pleased it's doing well. Congratulations. Thank you. One thing we like to ask all our guests is what else have you been watching lately? Speaking of lockdown, what have you been watching when you've been at home? Zalmira, you first. Oh gosh, um, I've been watching a mix of children's films with my children and then I watched a beautiful film the other day I hadn't seen called Chaos by the Taviani brothers, which was really stunning and my brother-in-law, he has a projector so we got to watch it on that and the visuals were incredible. So actually on that weekend I watched that and then I watched the latest Star Wars with my children. So there's high and low. <laughs> nice, perfect, perfect. Zaina? I saw Steve McQueen's Mangrove and I, I loved it because Great. obviously I grew up around here. And so I really loved seeing the film and I got very angry and upset as well. And it kind of brought up a lot of feeling. It was just so brilliant. And then um, I've been sort of into The Crown. Can I say that? <laughs> you can. Yes, I'm watching it tonight. 
<laughs> also because that's the other side so I'm like I'm in between where the crown is like but what I you know like whatever Kensington so basically it's just quite funny because geographically I feel like all the things that people are watching are like all around me so I was watching that and there's some really it, it's just another thing from childhood it's interesting because we all grew up with Diana and that era and I remember when they got married that's quite fun. And then also I watched The Queen's Gambit. I've been very generic in what I've watched, not as cool as Zell, <laughs> apart from The Mangrove. The Mangrove was great. So I think Mangrove, Queen's Gambit and um, The Crown. Very good choices. Clearly very, um, very mainstream. I'm starting The Crown tonight. So I haven't done it yet, but I feel like I must do now because everyone's talking about it so much. I think do you know what it done. is? It's just childhood. It's just reliving a bit of your childhood. But the funniest part was we were in the park, a friend of mine, and... We'd walked really far and we were up by Knightsbridge. We were in Hyde Park. And I've never in that side of the park. And suddenly we saw like the soldiers like in full livery on these horses, like training. And we were transfixed. And we were like, normally we just walk past. But because of the crown, suddenly we were like really into watching <laughs> these <laughs> horses. And we we're like, what is wrong with us? <laughs> A subtle propaganda, guys. Watch out. Oh, no, you're all royalists now. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, that's, that's great stuff. Listen, it's been such fun talking to you both. And um, best of luck with Luxor. I hope we'll get you both back on the pod sometime to talk about whatever you're, you're doing next, whether together or apart. That'd be great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Don't you miss how hopeful we were? I wish you could be like that. That was Zaina Dura and Zelmira Gainzer. My next guest is Leslie Felperin, a film writer for The Hollywood Reporter and The Guardian. Leslie, welcome back to Girls on Film. Oh, lovely to be here. You last came on at Cannes, I think, didn't you? That's right. Cannes Film Festival. Remember those days? Yes. God, it feels like a billion years ago, doesn't it? Makes you all misty-eyed thinking about it. Yeah. So I'm talking to you from London. Whereabouts are you? I'm in Norfolk in uh, the middle of the broads. Lovely. Well, it's nice to speak to you remotely. And uh, thank you for joining us to review some films today. Cool. Now, we have just heard from the women behind Luxor. I am a fan of this film. I led with it when I covered for Mark Kermode on the BBC News Film Review. It just, for me, it really stood out. And I know that you gave it a glowing review in The Guardian. So it's safe to say we both like the film, but it is quite gently paced, a mysterious film. Mm. What drew you in particularly? I really love the sort of texture of it. And I love the way it captured what those kinds of places are like. They jokingly mentioned Death on the Nile in the film. Yes. Uh, and of course, we've got a remake of Death on the Nile coming up that Kenneth Branagh directed, who's going to once again be Hercule Poirot. And it's always this very prettified version of uh, Egypt. And what I liked about it was that sort of sense that you really, really felt what it was really like to be in a place like Luxor that is mm. sort of scruffy and dirty in places, but also incredibly grand and regal and this lovely sort of faded beauty. Even the hotel that she's staying at called the Winter Palace and her her ex-boyfriend, her ex-lover, who she kind of cooks up with again, is always bemoaning that they're going to do a refurb of it and what a shame it would be if the white courtesy telephones go and <laughs> that sort of slightly scruffy kind of feel about it right down to the level of the sound of the film the way that you always hear sort of honking and traffic and teenage girls singing in arabic yes there's some pop song and just this real lovely sort of sense of lived in of that kind of 
bristlingness, that abrasion between the very, very old and very, very ancient and rather grand and just very kind of commoner garden, Mediterranean scruffiness. Yeah. I thought that was great. It really captured that. And I love the way the film withheld and didn't spell everything out. So you kind of infer from little hints and little drops that the character played by Andrea Riseborough is deeply traumatized by what she's seen in Syria, that she's been a doctor there and she's lived through a war zone. She's maybe with something like Médecins Sans Frontières or something. And you feel this pain there and this longing and this sort of nostalgia, not just for the past grandeurs of Egypt, but also nostalgia for her youth and her love for Sultan, the archaeologist she meets up with again. Everything's kind of just under the surface, really. And it reminded me, I said in the review, that it, her work really reminds me of Joanna Hogg, who did, you know, Unrelated and Archipelago. It's interesting that a lot of people have compared those two filmmakers. Yeah. I would see why, but somehow I respond actually much more to this film than I do to Joanna Hogg's work, which I generally find just out of my grasp, you know, a little bit too elusive. And, yeah. I, and I find the dialogue a little bit too perfunctory, whereas I like, I think there are more mysteries to decode in this film, personally. Yeah. And, you know, and also a lot of that's down to Andrea Riseborough's incredible performance as well, because she just has that way of just a half smile, a little glimmer of the eye, and the camera follows her beautifully as well. And you can just divine so much from that so much exposition and also there's quite a nice bit of comedy in this film as well I think when you referred to the death on the Nile reference that's quite a funny darkly funny scene where she's chatted up by this kind of not very bright businessman in a bar mm. so it blends a lot of really interesting things um is there anything else you wanted to pick out about it I mean obviously the performance is tremendous I just like the way it's edited as I said I love the use of sound in it the use of source sound and source music. I don't think there's a soundtrack. There's not a composed soundtrack that's laid over the top. It's all very naturalistic, you know, which again is in that kind of vein of contemporary films like Joanna Hogwood, you know, and the sort of slow breath. I mean, she's got more movement to her camera. Yes. You know, it's not those kind of really static setups where the camera doesn't even pan or budge an inch and everything just walks either in or out of the frame. There's more handheld and more fluid Luxor but it's you know I think it's just it had a really kind of lovely naturalism and a real sensitive ear to what the local people are like you know the cab driver who's had an operation on his throat who she's old friends with and the people who work in the hotel who are kind of foreigners but also sort of locals at the same time and these you know strange people who kind of come to have a very different view of Egypt as professional archaeologists but are very kind of wry and funny about the other kind of uh, tourists who come looking for the sort of spiritual experience of to visit a place where they they feel that they were reborn once you know they lived there once before and they're, they're all making fun mm -hmm. of it it has a kind of playfulness about all the different kinds of levels of the kind of people you meet in that sort of in-between place its sense of place was just so rich and sense of character was so rich and she's such a wonderful kind of sounding board for all that it's a really pared down quiet performance for andrea riseborough i think this is her best performance yet and I think clearly a very sympathetic director. Yeah, Zona Dara, I think she's a fantastic female director to watch, definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah, really yeah. excited to see what she does next. And I think you're right. For me, one of the biggest elements of this film is the armchair travel at the moment, when you could, as you say, you can almost smell it, you can yeah. hear it, and you feel like you're there. And that's just such a gift right now. 
yeah even the quality of the light the cinematography is lovely because you get the sense of the, the heat there but it's not super hot it's kind of a little bit off season like it's spring or maybe autumn or something and it's not that kind of glaring searing light it's a kind of milky quality about it which is really quite beautiful and quite sort of english in a way but it, it, it does feel really distinctive and different than the other beautifully put Looking ahead to sort of Christmas time, we've both been lucky enough to see the film Soul, the new Disney Pixar film, of course, directed by Pete Doctor and co-directed by Kemp Powers with the voices of Jamie Foxx and Tina Fey. Is this heaven? No, it's the great before. This is where new souls get their personalities, quirks and interests before they go to Earth. Meet 22. I don't want to go to Earth. Stop fighting this. I don't want to. Uh... <laughs> Hey, look, I already know everything about Earth, and I don't want anything to do with it. You're missing out on the joys of life, like, uh, pizza. I can't smell. We can't... we can't taste either? All that stuff is in your body. No smell, no taste... Or touch. See? Okay, I get it. Did you see this on the big screen? Yes, I did. I was very, you know, privileged and lucky to go see if they had a screening a couple of months ago during the LFF in what a month ago I think it just feels like a thousand years these days I think we must have been at the same one in Leicester Square probably I didn't see many people there well I mean it's very hard and everyone's wearing masks but now it's going straight to Disney Plus on Christmas Day so we're we're among the few people to have seen this on the big screen with a big crowd so I feel very lucky it's about of course a middle school teacher who dreams of becoming a famous jazz player but has an accident and ends up in another realm with a sarcastic soul called 22. So he's played by Jamie Foxx and she's played by Tina Fey. She or they, I'm actually wondering whether 22 is Disney Pixar's first truly non-binary character. Any thoughts on that, Leslie? I hadn't thought of that. That's an interesting. I know someone in my life right now who's just coming out as non-binary. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it hadn't occurred to me because, you know, she does sort of say she's not, she, she sounds to him like whatever is going to be most annoying. Yes, which is a middle-aged white woman. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so, yeah, that is really charming, actually. Another first, because they had the first really out gay characters, a lesbian policewoman in Onward, who was just, you know, they made a big fuss of this, you know, isn't this great? Disney's going to have a gay character. And they weren't anyone really major or main. But uh, I wonder if, yeah, the non-binary community be thrilled with uh, this or not. I imagine they might think, you know, a bit of a shrug. You know, it's not quite a film really about gender, is it? But in a way, it's about the very essence of people and how that maybe transcends age, time you were born. You know, just it is about souls. It is about, you know, what, what makes people very, very uniquely them beyond kind of material body. And the key focus is, of course, though, um, the character played by Jamie Foxx, and he is black. And that is another first, I think, for a Pixar film to be set predominantly within the black community. So that is something to be celebrated. It is. Although, yes, it is the first film from Pixar to feature a black character or black voice. But let's not forget that Disney, which now kind of is effectively merged with Pixar, made The Princess and the Frog, where the main character was black, you know, years ago. So it's not like it's that entirely novel, but it's great. You know, at this moment, at this juncture in history, it's extremely refreshing to have a film that's not just, doesn't just happen to have a black character that's kind of by the by 
it's celebrating black culture in a very direct way, in a very earnest way. Yeah, absolutely. It's through jazz, which I think is lovely. I love jazz music. I'm no expert at all, but I'm, I'm, I'm just learning to get to understand it more and explore it more. And I think this film will be really inspiring for people who want to learn more about jazz and celebrate its complexity and its uniqueness. It's just really lovely that way that they would choose jazz. You know, maybe it's a little bit on the nose, but I think it's it's great. I mean, they could have easily have made a musician and happen be a classical pianist instead. But I think it's nice actually that it's jazz and it's celebrating something that's very truly American and truly something that was developed and refined and made famous worldwide by African-American artists. And there is a very fabulous female character in this sort of famous female jazz singer that he eventually gets to play for and he's super excited about. And I thought she was rather wonderful as well. In terms of as a family film, how do you think this works? Because it's a little bit more complex than some of the films, I would say, generally. Yeah, I would say it skews a little bit older, but it seems very much of a piece with Inside Out. Mm. It's kind of exploring the interior world, creating this own unique Pixar metaphysics of you know, yeah. what makes up a psyche, what makes up our personalities. You know, Inside Out, I sort of thought was a little bit out there as well in its own way, the personality islands and that our inner voices could be divided up into anger, joy, sorrow, and, you know, this a little bit schematic. Yes. And although I know that they made a big fuss of that they consulted with neuroscientists and and psychologists about this and developmental psychologists especially to create a kind of image of what goes on in the head of a 12-year-old girl. I thought it was a bit odd. And then, you know, similarly, this one is kind of what makes us human, what makes us individual, what is that essence? And you know, he's trying to help 22, the character voiced by Tina Fey, in order to get back to the real world, his kind of pact is that he must, like Clarence in It's a Wonderful Life, help 22 find her spark, the thing that really gets her happy. She's never found anything before. She's always, you know, run rings around every other kind of mentor she's had up until now. And I didn't find it entirely clear what it was in the end. There's a sort of moment with a tree or a sycamore helicopter, you know, those little seeds from sycamore trees that lands on her palm of her hand and she has this epiphany. And I didn't quite understand what happened there. But anyway, yeah. it moves the story along and it all has a nice happy ending. You know, it's grappling with something quite abstract and quite cerebral. And I think it's that ambition is really unique. And, you know, you could pick little holes in it and sort of be very fussy about it. But I think one of the things I really like about Pixar is compared to some of the other franchises within the Disney house, you know, with the Marvel films are the big money earners for them, as are their cartoons, their animation. But what's great about Pixar particularly, and I guess what makes them a little bit different than from the animated films that Disney makes, is that nearly every story Pixar has made has been original. It's been truly yeah. something they've thought up themselves. You know, they're not based on a pre-established brand or a pre-established fairy tale like Rapunzel, as fantastic as I thought Tangled was, or, you know, Pinocchio or Snow White. They're always really, truly original stories. Sometimes they go a little bit too original <laughs> and maybe <laughs> might be a little hard, but I think that's great that, you know, it's not only challenging us as adult viewers, but, you know, hopefully challenges children. Actually, that complexity and that that mystery that's there is quite compelling and might reward the repeat viewings that children like to do. And they love to watch films over and over and over again. I think I've, yes, they do. Yeah, yes. I mean, I've, I think I've seen Wally because when it came out on video, 
my son was then about three or four and i think we watched wally a hundred times or something like that and <laughs> luckily wally is a, a really well it's good it's Thank a goodness. spectacular yeah. movie yeah it is and it just made me appreciate it to the point where i put it in my top 10 for the sight and sound uh survey because you know it really it holds up it holds up every time i cry every time mm -hmm. i certainly cried when i saw soul in the cinema it was a really overwhelming experience and it may have just been that kind of catharsis of seeing a movie in a cinema for a change but i think it will last actually i think this is this is maybe one of their great ones and it's possibly because it's kind of a little bit crazy and a little bit flawed and a little bit weird it goes in a different direction than you might be expecting, which is quite refreshing in that kind of genre. Mm. And it does leave some questions unanswered, but it does leave room for conversation. And I think those are possibly all great things as kids are getting older and thinking about spiritual matters and what matters in life and all the questions that everyone's thinking about a lot at the moment. Yeah. Oh, there, fellow astro travelers. Good to see you again, 22. Bring it madness, thanks for asking. Hey, got a request for you. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to get back to my body. Can you help me? That's what we do. We are the mystics without borders, devoted to helping the lost souls of Earth find their way. I'm Moon Wind Star Dancer at your service. That's Wind Star Dreamer Moon, Dancer Star Wind Moon, and that's Dreamer Wind Dreamer Dreamer. These weirdos are going to help me get back? Just wait. One final thing on this one. Graham Norton pops up unusually in this, um, doing the voice for a very sort of hippie-ish character. How did that work for you? It was fine. You know, strange, odd casting choice, but he has a great voice. He does. I mean, it sort of makes you think about if you were a voice casting associate, you know, you, you must think about things a little bit differently. You don't have to kind of match someone's physicality to a character. He's got that very fast delivery and that bubbly tone to his voice, as well as, you know, the charming Irish accent, which adds another dimension. And he's not too camp, actually, because, you know, we think of Graham Norton as this impish little leprechaun on TV, you know, sort of always yeah. making innuendos and double entendre and just really being very playful and a little bit naughty. That's not exactly the character that he's playing in this. It's actually someone different. So it's kind of makes you think, oh, what do we would it be like to have Graham Norton playing more straight dramatic roles or yes. playing just fictional roles? He's not as well known in the States by any means as you, but they do know him. They do, you know, on BBC America, they people do do watch him. And he has, I have, you know, American friends who absolutely love watching the Graham Norton show. Yeah, see, I love watching it. And I think that's what distracted me because it, it seems so in contrast to his actual character. Obviously, a lot of celebrity casting happens that way, but I couldn't quite make the leap of this slow, hippie-ish character with his kind of perkiness. <laughs> but um, it's always good to hear his voice. So that was Soul. Let's move on to our final film that we're going to review together, and it's called I Am Belle Meyer. It's a story that was 14 years in the making. It's a feature documentary set in Nepal, following an uneducated young woman's transformational journey from subjugated wife to documentary filmmaker. Taking the camera and the power into her hands, Belmaya stands up to her abusive husband and makes a film about the importance of education for girls. And it's co-directed by Sue Carpenter and Belmaya herself. Now, I found this pretty inspiring stuff. Leslie, what did you make of it? I did too. It was delightful, really delightful. And just really interesting, both as a documentary, like, where it's not just about the craftsmanship of the film itself, but also just the project that it represents. I've heard of friends of mine who have done similar sort of things with children, with deprived children or children who've been through great trauma. I know someone who was making films with kids who were refugees 
for instance, and using cameras to tell their own stories or to explore things or just to feel that when you take up a camera, even just we ourselves in our daily lives, when you are the one who takes the photograph rather than being photographed, it creates a sense of power and a sense of agency. And that's what was so fascinating about watching Belmai in the film, going to go from this quite low caste and, you know, she was an orphan, both her parents had died and her brothers didn't want to deal with her and they just sort of stuck her in a children's home, a girl's home where she was beaten quite badly and, you know, just had a really, really rubbish life in a very short amount of time. You know, she's only like a, an adolescent when we first meet her. And by, you know, holding the means of production, as it were, you know, by being given, you know, this camera, it sort of helps her to discover a sense of agency and to kind of grow and to kind of see in herself as something that's an artist as well. And also helps her grow as a parent, as a mother. She, you know, she eventually has a little girl of her own and, you know, she believes really passionately in giving girls a better chance, you know, living in a very, still very almost feudalistic society where girls are valued much less, resources are limited, so people don't pay money to ensure girls have an education, rather they put them to work instead. It was, you know, I think it's a really important film, actually, and really just beautifully done, really touching and beautifully done. I agree. I think it was it was just delightful to see someone undergo that kind of change in front of your very eyes and to overcome terrible, terrible obstacles. I'm going to be hosting a Q&A with her soon, actually, um, which will be online, which will be really interesting to see how she's doing, because obviously it's it's not an easy time. She was inspiring because she had so much stacked against her, but with the encouragement and some of the you know right training, she was just like storming ahead. And it was a wonderful message to see. As you say, the camera is power, literally and psychologically, I think for a lot of women, and that's something we love to celebrate on Girls on Film. So thank you for talking about that. Now, Leslie, is there anything else you've been watching that you've enjoyed lately that you'd like to share with us? Um, I am, like everyone else in the world, watching The Crown with my (laughs) husband and my dear, one of my best friends who's come to stay with us for lockdown. And that's quite enjoyable, particularly because my dear friend Monica is visually impaired. So I have to describe a lot of things for her, like, oh my God, she's wearing this dress now. The looks is just incredible, you know, or there's Princess Di pretending to be a tree or dressed as in a costume for a school play. So that's been good fun. And also the undoing. So both of them quite trashy, girly viewing. But we're, we're, the three of us are enjoying watching them very much. I've been enjoying the undoing. Yeah. High gloss, high gloss, gripping stuff. Yeah. As you say, quite tawdry, but. It's very Gillian Flynn. Yeah. Very yeah. Gillian Flynn, isn't it? I really enjoyed as well, speaking of that, Brave New World a lot. Did you see that? Oh, yeah. Yes, I've been enjoying that as well. I mean, it's quite, it's sort of quite fun, trashy sci fi, but also, I haven't read the older Tuckley for a long time but I think they take some liberties with it don't they I think so yeah I haven't read it since high school either yeah but yeah there's something quite compelling about it mm, I love the, the sexiness of it and I love the costumes oh I love this yes sort of Iris Van Herpen weird textured 3d printed sort of fabrics and uh, with bizarre little pleats in them and I mean I love futuristic clothing oh me too especially ones made in the 60s and their vision of futuristic yeah clothing, exactly fantastic but you've got amazing fabrics available now so yeah it's, it's yeah let's watch that one for the fashions I think alone all great choices thank you and I love that I'm getting to watch more tv now as well because obviously normally I can only just watch film but we're all at home I know isn't it interesting do you feel like we're in the wrong business now 
<laughs> well, I feel like we can cover both, and we have been on Girls on Film, so um, you know what? Uh, it's all a visual medium. I've been saying my mother, I'm so brilliant and clairvoyant that certainly there has to come a point where these boundaries between being a TV critic and being a film critic start to break down. And it's been happening for a while. I can remember having to review High Mat 3 at the Venice Film Festival, which took 20 hours of my time as we sit through <laughs> all the episodes. But, you know, as more TV kind of came into film festivals and now big name directors are working in television as well as in film. In fact, they're finding they're getting the better budgets to do what they want to yes. in television. It's just so interesting now that all those boundaries are sort of breaking down. Something appalling happened to you. To lose how you lost. That's a long time ago. Pain doesn't know time here. We've been through some bad things, but we'll take care of each other. This place is safe. When was the last time you really let go, Sam? Most people are scared of pain. But they don't know how warm it can be. My final recommendation would be The Third Day, because Philippa Lothorpe did an amazing job in the final <gasps> part. Love of that. that. Yes. Love so that. Great. So it's great. great. And wasn't Jude Law fantastic in it? I mean, they're Jude all great. And Naomi Harris is brilliant too. But I, I think Jude Law's one of those people who keeps getting better and better. And I don't know if you've seen The Nest yet, the Sean Durkin film. It's really good. I don't know when Excellent. it's going to come out here. It, again, it was at Sundance, but it was really, really striking. And Jude Law was great in it, actually. As a character, is not that dissimilar in a way to... His character in the third day, someone who seems charming and delightful, but has uh, got some dark sides to him. So listeners, if you haven't caught all those things, check them out. Brilliant. It's been such a pleasure to speak to you, Leslie. Is there anything else you want to leave us with? Uh, I've been listening to so many podcasts. It's kind of fun to like do podcasting with you. Because oh, I, I do a lot of knitting <laughs> and podcasting is my new favourite thing to do. I knit, listen to uh, other people talking about mostly politics or knitting or film. Those are my three <laughs> main subjects these days. Uh, so I can't do one thing at a time. It's just impossible for me, you know. <laughs> this is a crazy multitasking world. Anyway, um, Leslie, it's been such a pleasure. Will you stay safe and come back again on Girls on Film soon? We'd love to have you. Absolutely. Great to talk to you, Anna. I Am Belmire is out in 2021, but you can watch the world premiere online at the Global Health Film Festival on the 1st of December 2020, followed by a live Q&A hosted by me. It's also screening from the 2nd to the 6th of December at belmire.com. We also have a special video event to look out for on December the 16th, 2020, the awards show for 16 Days, 16 Films. I will be donning a sparkly frock to host a visual Girls on Film Awards show. The programme will celebrate Modern Films and the Caring Foundations initiative to platform filmmakers who are campaigning to end all forms of violence against women. Visit 16days16films.com for more info. If you'd like to support Girls on Film, go to patreon.com forward slash girls on film podcast and please subscribe and review us. Also do follow us and message us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Details on this and more are in the show notes. You've been listening to me, Anna Smith, and I was joined by Zaina Dura, Zelmira Gainzer and Leslie Felperin. Girls on Film is executive produced by Hedda Archbold. It's produced by Jane Long. Our assistant producer is Heather Dempsey. Our intern is Eliana Jay. And our partners for this episode are Modern Films. 
Thanks to them all and to you for listening. See you soon. Stay safe. You want fame? Well, fame costs. And right here is where you start paying in sweat. <laughs>